What if you were in a situation where you received the sentence of death? Okay, second-degree murder. I think this was in New York, especially in New York, is not going to carry the penalty of death, but it's certainly a very serious penalty. But, you know, what if you had that penalty of death? Well, even though the threat is not immediate, you still have that sense of impending doom. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. But he said that we... We felt that, that sense of, you know, hey, life is over as we know it, because that would make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And that was the reason the Apostle Paul followed Jesus, because Jesus rose from the dead. He wasn't following Jesus just because Jesus was a good teacher or Jesus was a miracle worker, but the Apostle Paul literally believed that Christ rose from the dead. And, uh, you know, he had a vision of the risen Christ on his road to Damascus, and that was what converted him. Um, so I want to, I don't think I read this in my notes last week, but if I did, I'm just reviewing, all right? Um, God doesn't want you and I to be self-reliant. God wants us to recognize our dependence upon him and trust him and then do everything out of an acknowledgement of his presence and leadership. Now, that doesn't mean we just sit around and do nothing, right? We, we do need to, to work, but we work realizing that the results are up to the Lord, right? I've got to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit who will remind me of the truth of Scripture. Jesus is Lord, so I'm going to do his will and not my own. Striving to do God's will by myself, that's just legalism. That's, that's not enough. I've got to rely on the Spirit to empower me. There are plenty of instances where I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't know what we're going to do next. I mean, last year we had... Uh, you know, it was looking like we're, our rent was going to be doubled and people were getting marched through here to rent the building out from under us. And, you know, I didn't know what we were going to do. I did what I thought I needed to do. I brought everybody together and met with everybody. And <laughs> that seemed to just upset people and, <laughs> you know, cause minor division and, and raise hopes. Hey, well, maybe we'll get out of the building and go somewhere else. Well, the Lord's got to show me somewhere else and he still hasn't shown me somewhere else. But we're still in a situation where we're, we're month by month on this rent deal. I mean, quite honestly, we're not in some wealthy situation. In fact, as the summer comes to a conclusion, I'm just like, well, Lord, what are we going to do? I guess I'll buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> you know, somehow we've got to have this money come in. Well, that's my example of saying you've got to trust the Lord, right? I'm trusting the Lord. I, I'm going to do whatever I know how to do. All right, I'm going to preach the word. I'm going to reach out. Um, but the Lord has to act. And he's acted for 23 years. He's continued to protect us and provide for us. If that's the case for me and for us, that's the case for you as well. Amen? So that's what I want you to understand is that the Lord wants us not to stop working, but he wants us to rely on him. Uh, I don't remember if I... Um, ventured into the story about Job last week. I don't think I did. But the real reason God brought Job into so much loss and tragedy and suffering was to remove Job's self-righteousness and reveal his limited understanding and experience of God. You know, a lot of times people read Job and they're like, you know what? Job's right. He was just persecuted. There's no reason for this. And, you know, we can't figure out why God. God's just a big meanie and made a bet with the devil and, you know, I guess the lesson of Job is God is sovereign and shut up and, you know, put your nose down and 
just deal with your stuff. But I think you don't have to read the entirety of Job to get the lesson from Job. Read the first two chapters and the last chapter, and you'll figure it out, right? Job was self-righteous. Now, God bragged on Job, so it wasn't that Job's righteousness was false. He was righteous. But you see, there's such a pride that goes along with that, isn't it? Well, I don't do anything wrong. I do everything right. You people are wrong. And Job wasn't even really that way, although his friends were that way toward him, okay? But he was very self-righteous, all right? Um, so his three friends sat with him for a week and said nothing, and then they started piping up and saying, hey, Job, buddy, you had to have done something wrong. Nobody has stuff like this happen to them unless they do something wrong. But the reality was Job never had done anything wrong. It simply was the case that the Lord had a plan for Job that involved all of this tragedy. Now, Jesus himself in the Lord's prayer, in his, you know, prayer, um, his model prayer, said, lead us not into temptation. You remember that line from the Lord's prayer? Well, that same word for temptation is the word for trial or testing. We need to actively pray, Lord, don't. I don't want Job's situation. I don't want to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years like the people of Israel. Just tell me what you want me to do. I will trust and obey, right? So I'm not saying that it has to be like this for us, right? But I am saying we will go through trial. We will go through trouble. We will go through difficulty. And the purpose is to teach us to rely on the Lord. So Job's three friends stopped answering him because he was righteous in his own eyes. That's what it says in Job 32.1. He was righteous in his own eyes. Is that not self-righteousness? That's exactly what that is. Then the Lord confronted Job, and Job realized how little he knew and how much he learned through his personal tragedy and suffering. And so Job 42.5, to me, is the reason that Job went through what he went through. I, I've taught this for years, and I believe that this is uh, the purpose statement for it. It's not God made a bet with the devil, and God is sovereign, and that's all there is to it. No, this is what Job says. My ear had heard of you. He's talking to the Lord. But now my eye has seen you. I repent in dust and ashes. What did he have to repent of? His self-righteousness, right? He said, I'd heard about you. Have you heard about God? You heard about God your whole life? You've been in Sunday school? You've been in church? Been to every camp? Got all the T-shirts? Been to all the conferences? Hearing, hearing, hearing about is not the same as experiencing. And sometimes it takes a lot of trial and testing and struggle for us to learn to trust the Lord and experience the Lord, right? Um, all right. So for those of us who believe in the resurrected Christ, there is the benefit of his vicarious death. That is, he died for us and the resulting realization that eternal life with God is all that truly matters. All this stuff, you know, I see all sorts of things that I used to want, you know, oh, man, I'd, I'd really like that, you know, that house, or I'd really like a Corvette, or, you know, all, uh, you know, I'll, I'll watch a video on YouTube, and it's like, oh, here's this cool, this, and cool. And I'm like, you know what? I don't care about any of that anymore. <laughs> it's just, 
uh, yeah. I, I just want to do what the Lord's put me down here on earth to do and then go to heaven. That's what I want to do. So, uh, you know, I'm like, Lord, let's do what you called me here to do. Um, I like this quote. It's from a movie that I can't recommend. Uh, but, I, it, it, <laughs> but it was a movie that was integrally tied uh, to the start of our church. It's a movie called Fight Club. And uh, there's a nefarious character in there uh, who makes this wise statement. It's only when we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. Amen. What did Jesus say? Right? He said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. It's just a seed. Who cares? It's doing nothing. But if it dies, it becomes what, it, what its potential is. It becomes what it was intended to be. Right? Yeah, an acorn is cool. Set it up on your mantle, you know. But that's not, an acorn wasn't intended to be a decoration for your mantle or part of a collage. It was intended to be planted in the ground and turn into an oak tree that produces many acorns for many future oak trees. That's you, man. That's you and I. We're intended to be so much more. Everything you're going through has a purpose. We're supposed to die to ourselves and live to Christ. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Indeed, if you're in Christ, right? This is you. This is Jesus. You're in Christ. Colossians 3.3 3 says, For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. If you want to know who you really are, you need to look at Jesus. I said it Sunday. I'll say it again. There's a lot of talk today about, well, I identify as Adeline. I identify as. You need to identify as a child of God. You need to identify as part of a nation of priests. You need to identify as a Christian, which means, what does that word mean? It means little Christ. You're the representative of Jesus on earth. Are you representing him, right? Then he says he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. So he's looking at his previous experience and he's saying, you know what? The Lord delivered us. And he's going to deliver us again. And we'll have, uh, I mean, I don't know how many months from now it will be, but the Apostle Paul will talk about all of the tragedy and difficulty that he's been through in his ministry. And you can see that time after time after time, the Lord saved him out of all of this trouble, out of beatings and whippings and shipwrecks and, you know, just all of this, the Lord continued to save him. So he, he's saying, you know, testimony time, the Lord delivered us from that near-death experience, and I have the hope that he will deliver us, which means the Apostle Paul realizes he's probably going to have to go through some of this stuff again. Now, ultimately, the Apostle Paul was martyred. He gave his life. He ended up in Rome. <clears throat> he ended up in prison. Eventually, he ended up uh, in the Mamertine Dungeon. He continually wrote letters to the churches from there and testified to anyone who would listen to him. But eventually, the emperor Nero had him executed. Now, he was a Roman citizen, so um, he had his head lopped off, which sounds like a horrible death, I realize, but it's a lot easier than crucifixion, which is how Peter died, right? And they both died in Rome. 
So what I can say out of all of this is um, you and I, when we look at the world, need to be disillusioned. Now, disillusion is normally a very negative term, right? It means I have no hope. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to stop placing our hope in all these earthly things. They're all passing away. Even if someone had everything there is to offer, you know, you live in a lake house or, you know, you live in Malibu, California. I don't know if that's a great place to live anymore. California doesn't seem like a great place. I used to love California, but the government there is so, uh, you know, yeah. It, when they can lock you down and make you stay in your home week after week, month after month, and these people don't want to do anything about it, that's not where I want to be. So there is a lady that is currently running uh, for uh, the Dallas Commissioner's Court. Do you know what the Dallas Commissioner's Court is? Do you know who Clay Jenkins is? Yeah, he's the head of the Dallas Commissioner's Court, right? That's the guy that was able to say, unless you stay inside your house, you will be fined $1,500 and put in jail for six months. That guy that none of us ever had ever heard of. What? Well, he's a Democrat and he hates Governor Abbott, like hates him. Because Abbott said, no, you can't keep doing that. Let these people work, right? Clay Jenkins was the one that said churches are not necessary. That's what Governor Newsom said in California. Churches are not necessary. Governor Newsom said, you're not allowed to sing. That is exactly, his executive order said, you, if you go to church, when they finally let him go, you cannot sing. You're not permitted to sing. This is the United States of America. What in the world? Because we're all so scared of a virus. My friends, my goodness. Ha <laughs> ha. So this lady is running for that seat, Clay Jenkins' seat, on the, the Dallas County Commissioner's Court. I can't remember her name, but when you vote, you want to vote for the lady. <laughs> That's all I can say. Vote for the lady. All right. Um, but the point is, you know, we've been through all of this drama over the last couple of years, right? But it's nothing compared to what these people were going through, where they were littered. Now, I'm not lightening COVID. Uh, the guy that used to do our fire inspections here in this building was 48 years old, and he died because of COVID, right? The other guy that just recently just passed our fire inspection was in the hospital for a month. It's not a joke, and I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm just trying to say that we give up our freedom too easily all the way back to where I started, um, you know, wherever I would, I would love to live. I'd love to live on the ocean. I'd love to do what my stepdad does. Uh, he lives in Phoenix, Arizona in the winter. When well, the winter, Phoenix is awesome. In the summer, well, it's pretty much like it is outside right now here, right? It's a very purgatorial experience. Let us just say that. Well, then he just goes to Wyoming where it's like 57 degree high, you know, yeah, to me, that's, you know, if I were to just say, okay, you know, I'm going to do what's easy for me. I'm five years away from retirement. I can never retire, so don't worry. You're not going to get rid of me that easy. Um, I don't have any money to retire, so that's the problem. Actually, even if I did, what am I going to do? Sit around? Do nothing? No, I got to do what I got to do. But if I were able to do, you know, just what feels good and have these goals, yeah, sure, man, that's great. Go up where it's nice and cool in the mountains, when it's so doggone hot and then come down where it's warm when it's so doggone cold because Wyoming, 
wow. But in the winter, Wyoming, wow, <laughs> right? But, you know, in the end, I've got to be disillusioned from all of that stuff. I've got to see that I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's where I'm headed, right? Um, we'll finish up this Sunday uh, the promises that were made to Abraham and how they apply to us. And uh, part of the blessing of Abraham uh, and what caused me to go back to Abraham after we'd already been through the holy history, starting with Joseph and going all the way to the point where they were ready to enter the promised land, is because I wanted you all to see why they had the right to enter the promised land. God offered it all the way back to Abraham. But see, for us, the promised land, we do have a promised land, but it's not Israel. It's not Canaan. Christians shouldn't be saying, and, and this did happen in the, in the Middle Ages with the Crusades. Christians were saying, no, this is our land. It's, no, our land is heaven. It's the kingdom of heaven. Until we get there, we're in Babylon, right? The, the people of Israel were taken captive in Babylon and uh, Jeremiah wrote a letter to them and he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to settle down. And I want you to look after the interests of the city you're in, pray for the city you're in. I want you to plant crops. I want you to have families. I want you to, uh, to pray for those people that you're in the midst of, right? And they would be in that situation for 70 years and then they would be brought back to the promised land. How long are we down here on earth? Well, I hope you get to live beyond 70. Some of you are already beyond 70, so amen. <laughs> I hope I get to live that long. Yeah. <laughs> I used to just think, you know, well, things are going to get better. Things are going to get better. Things are going to get different. And a decade after another, after another goes by. And now I'm like, oh, kind of reaching the end here. Things need to hurry up and get better. Right. But what we're looking forward to is the, uh, a city that will, um, will always exist. Right. That uh, the Lord is the light of that city. Um, that we're always safe in that city, that we're always provided for in that city. That's what we need to be looking forward to, okay? And then he says, you must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. So prayer permits us to participate in the works of God all over the world, right? Find out what's going on in other parts of the world, and instead of worrying about it, pray about it. You know, we hear of all this stuff going on in the Ukraine. It's tragic, and, um, you know, Putin is just not willing to give up. He just keeps fighting and fighting and fighting. People keep dying and dying and dying. We need to keep praying and praying and praying. Amen? We can pray for ministries we can pray for people all over the world, and we can fully expect that God is going to answer. And the Apostle Paul was, was certainly under that impression here. All right, now let's move on to the next passage. This is verses 12 through 14. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. All right? So let's 
look at that phrase, we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity as opposed to earthly wisdom, worldly wisdom. Um, he moved by the grace of God, uh, and supremely so, he says. So let's look at some other translations of that phrase. The first phrase, we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. All the translations that I'm going to list here translate the second one as sincerity, right? But they have different ways of translating that word simplicity. The NASB, the uh, 1995 uh, update of the New American Standard Bible, translates the first phrase like this. We behaved in holiness and godly sincerity. The NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, says we have behaved in the world with frankness and godly sincerity. And then the NIV translates it, we have conducted ourselves in the world with integrity and godly sincerity. Well, the word um, that is translated variously there, that the ESV translates simplicity, that first one, again, so that you're not lost, we've behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. We're teaching from the ESV, so now you understand, right? That word that ESV translates simplicity is um, aplotes, and this is the lexical definition, the quality of sincerity as an expression of singleness of purpose or motivation. It can be translated sincerity or purity of motive. It is similar to the following term, the next term, which all three, as I said, uh, translate godly sincerity. So that explains why uh, it's translated differently than sincerity because the second word definitely means godly sincerity. So this is obviously has another shade of meaning. Um, don't get confused because I bring in different translations. There, there are people that would like you to believe that with all of these different translations, I don't know, you know, you just need to go with one, you know, King James or, or all these different translations prove that, you know, it, it's all um, you know, confusion and contradiction and you can't trust it. No, far from it. Do you speak ancient Hebrew? No, you don't. And in spite of the fact that I can read it, I can barely read it. Um, do you speak uh, Koine Greek, ancient common Greek? No, you don't. So you need to have somebody translate that, right? Well, I would rather have multiple panels of scholars translating that and let me bring it all together and let the Holy Spirit speak to me. Let's calm down with all this, well, all those translations. I love the fact that we have so many translations. That's why I'm bringing this out because it brings different shades of meaning, right? It's just like if you're reading a novel and you encounter a word that you don't know and you look it up in the dictionary or these days, you know, if you've got a Kindle, you can just touch it and then you've downloaded the dictionary, it'll give you the dictionary. It's awesome. It'll make you smarter, basically, right? So simplicity, as the ESV translates it, means pure of heart and mind, um, not duplicitous, right? Not scheming, not, uh, not having a divided sense of motive, Um if I used a software term, it would be wussywig. You know what wussywig means? W-S-I-W-Y-G. What you see is what you get. So these days, I am the one that 
um, puts together our church's website. Well, that's because uh, um, it's called Square now. Um, they bought out the company that our website is hosted by. But basically, they have tools for you to, um, to design the website that require no coding. I don't have to, to know HTML or Perl or any of these other coding languages because it's wussywig. What you see is what you get. Hey, here's the text. This is what it's going to look like. But see, behind that is all this coding, 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 right? Secret codes, different codes, you know. And so um, the people that made that wussywig designer site had to know some serious coding, right? But I don't have to know it. So, you know, have you heard, uh, you know, books like the Bible code? There are secret messages in the scripture. You just got to get the right, you got to read between the lines and you've got to understand these things. Nonsense. Nonsense. Throw the Bible code out. All of those things. What you see is what you get. That's what the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, by the way, said, we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so so toward you. This is how he behaved. This is how he wrote the scripture, right? That's the kind of simplicity we're talking about. Um, Remember what Jesus said, the pure in heart will what? See God, right? The only way you're going to perceive God, know God, is to have a singleness of heart, of motive, of intention. The people who seem to be the most intelligent or, educa- or educated are often not the wisest and certainly not faith-oriented. Jesus taught that those with the simplicity of a child are most apt to be members of his kingdom. Here are two verses from Matthew. Matthew 18.3, Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, unless you change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Children are just straightforward, aren't they? You ever been around a little kid? They have no filter. <laughs> You're like, whoa, 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 don't say that. Why? <laughs> you know, they're just like, they're going to say it like they see it. Now, they may not see it accurately because they're still little, but they're not going to fake it till they make it. They're just going to say it like it is. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't lie, that they can't, you know, sin or anything like that. But I think a big part of the reason is is just because they're dependent and they are who they are. Adults pretend. We learn to pretend, right? In fact, the whole idea of personality, the word, um, comes from the Latin personae, which means a mask that you speak through. We all put a mask on, Right? Well, you can't let everybody know how you feel at every moment in time. To be honest with you, how you feel at a particular moment in time doesn't even uh, necessarily uh, accurately reflect who you really are, okay? Well, that's just how I feel. Well, calm down, right? Because you're upsetting everybody else and we don't have to do that, right? We need to learn to, uh, to have consideration, to think, you know, about what, how this will affect other people. That's not the same as being fake, right? Um, sincerity, openness. Yeah, I need to be willing to be open, but that doesn't mean that I tell everybody everything that I think, right? Whether it's right or whether it's wrong. 
The second verse is, but Jesus said, leave the children alone. They were, they were trying to shoo the, the parents who were bringing their children to Jesus to bless them. And the disciples were like, gosh, leave him alone. Get your kid out of here. And Jesus said, leave the children alone and do not forbid them to come to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You've got to be more childlike, not more serpentine and worldly wise, right? As in the serpent of the Old Testament, all right? So um, let us cease with our adult pretenses, our sophistication, our calculation, our complexity. Oh, it's complex. It's complicated. Our relationship is complicated. Hmm, I wonder why that is. Jesus consistently opposed the religious leaders precisely because of their hypocrisy. They were complicated. Here's a good example. Jesus spoke with authority and backed it up with miraculous signs. The religious leaders wanted to know where he got this authority. Who gave you this authority? Jesus knew that they wouldn't accept a simple statement, uh, you know, as an answer, because they'd already made up their minds. They were asking him this question, but they'd already made up their minds that they didn't believe that he had authority from God. What they were trying to do is back him into a corner and condemn him, get him to say something that they could hold against him in their court, which they eventually did, by the way. Remember, Jesus was arrested, dragged before the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night in an illegal trial. And they made all these accusations and he didn't answer any of them because they were all nonsense. Finally, one person said, he said that he could tear the temple down and raise it again in three days. Have you, did you actually say this? Well, he did say that, but he was referring cryptically to his body and what they were going to do to it, right? The temple of his body. And so then the chief priest, Caiaphas, said, I put you under oath by the living God. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, it is as you say. And then he quoted Daniel, Daniel chapter seven. And he said, and you will see the son of man uh, by the hand of power, by almighty God coming uh, with the, in the clouds of heaven. And so those that, that would say the synoptic gospels don't have Jesus claiming to be Messiah or God haven't read the synoptic gospels, right? Because that's in Mark, the earliest synoptic gospel, and that's also in Peter. Here's the, here's the uh, statement that I referred to, or the story I referred to. This is Matthew 21, 23 through 27. When he entered the temple area, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus responded and said to them, I will ask you one question, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they're complex. They began considering the implications among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men then we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. He also said to them, neither am I telling you by what authority I do these things. They're phonies. They're hypocrites. They'd already made up their minds. They didn't believe in John the Baptist, and they didn't believe in Jesus, and they were trying to accuse Jesus so that they could execute him. But they were liars. They were duplicitous. They were phony. They were politicians. Hmm. 
And I don't care whether your politician is from one side or the other. They're all politicians, right? Well, um, it seems to me that the Holy Spirit is communicating the idea when we look at simple and sincere, this idea of integrity. Paul is saying that his conscience is clear regarding his dealings with the Corinthians. He wasn't seeking to, de- to deceive them or to exploit them or to manipulate them or to get money from them. He wasn't employing some kind of worldly wisdom, even for a good purpose. Paul and his companions have eschewed expedience in their dealings with the church. What you see is what you get with Paul. He is straightforward and transparent. He expresses his feelings toward the community, even if that would make him seem weak and unprofessional. And it does at times. This is a lesson we all need to learn in a world dominated by appearances and and a social media world where everyone is looking for more likes or friends or followers. Perception is reality. That's uh, their motto, right? When the media covers issues, they're going to cover what they want you to see. Perception is reality. People are more interested in memes that convey their preconceived ideas than in being confused with the facts. We must avoid worldly games of guile and hypocrisy. Speak the truth in love, even if you lose some friends doing it. Now, the key is love. That doesn't mean you're obnoxious, right? Well, that's just the truth. Get over it, right? You love people, but you speak the truth. Um... If they can't handle the truth spoken in love from you, then they weren't truly a friend to begin with. And I've uh, whittled away at my Facebook friends for those very reasons, all right? Then he says, we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. So this is why I've I've, uh, applied all of this to the written word because the Apostle Paul's writings became the Bible, right? Paul indicates here that he's not trying to impress them with his letters. He's not writing above them with the use of technical or intellectual terminology. Paul was brilliant, frankly. I want you to read Ephesians chapter 1 and realize when you read it that in Greek, verses 3 through like 20, I want to say, are one single sentence in Greek. No punctuation, just boom. It's amazing. This is why when we read Paul, we go, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did he just say? I got to go back and read that again. Because it's so dense, right? Well, he's not trying to blow people away. He's not using technical terminology. Um, uh, He doesn't teach some kind of esoteric wisdom either. He doesn't use allegory or mysterious symbolism. There's no secret Bible code or hidden message in the text. The word of God is plain, simple, straightforward truth. So here's some application for you. Avoid books about the Bible when the author seeks to exalt himself or herself by elevating their interpretation or their system or their scheme above the 66 books of the Christian canon. I have read a number of books by Christian authors on the subject of homosexuality since the Obergefell decision went through in 2015. And I've even read books from those who I don't agree with. And buddy, they make that Bible dance. They make it say things that it just really doesn't say. 
But see, if you weren't somebody like me that has an education in the scripture or who reads the scripture daily, you might be led to believe what they write. Okay. Now I'm just using that as an example. I'm not trying to uh, get off on some bypath and and cause controversy here. Okay. Um, God, homosexuality is not God's plan. He's got a better plan. You may have feelings going a certain way or another way, but God's got a better plan than that, right? And trying to make the Bible say what you feel is not accurate, and it's not right. It's just not. And we all have feelings, and we all have friends. We have friends that are transgender. We have friends that are homosexual. We have all that. And I understand that. But that doesn't change the truth. Speak the truth in love, right? Now, I just use that as an example. There's, there are plenty of other examples where people uh, who get a certain amount of education feel compelled to make the Bible say what they want the Bible to say, Right? Um, so that's why I'm saying avoid books about the Bible where the author is taking this path. Well, no, no, no. What you don't understand is this, this, and this. And until you understand these things that are not in the Bible, you can't understand the Bible. Nonsense. The Bible is sufficient. Period. Now, God puts people like me in your path that are educated and who seek to get you into the word and who seek to help you over some speed bumps that are there, it's not always an easy book to read. I'm not saying that. But when you encounter an obscure passage, let the passages that are plain and clear guide you. Let the clearer passages interpret the more obscure passages rather than creating some sort of theology on the basis of some you know, obscure verse. So in the last Corinthian letter, we encountered that brief little uh, argument where the Apostle Paul said, if the dead are not raised, then why are people baptized for them? Which has led Mormons to baptize for the dead. Or at least it's led to a justification for that. But it's not teaching that. It's an obscure passage. But it is teaching that the Corinthians were doing that the Apostle Paul doesn't tell them not to do it, although there's nothing in Scripture that says to do it. And if you understand baptism, you understand that it's useless for somebody that's dead, and it's useless to do for somebody else, right? But we understand that he's saying that because he's showing that, they're, that they are at odds with their own logic. They, there were Corinthians who were saying there's no such thing as the resurrection from the dead, and yet they were being baptized for the dead. So he's saying you're contradicting yourself. So see, it takes somebody like me, and I don't mean just me, I mean somebody that is educated, has looked at this issue, and brings it out in front of you, right? But you don't build a whole theology on some obscure passage like that. If you don't understand it, then just skip it. Put it over to the side and keep reading. Focus on the stuff that makes the most sense. But you don't need some book by some scholar in order to understand the Bible, right? You don't need a code book over here to read the Bible, you just need to open a good translation and pray the Lord will speak to you and read the Bible, right? Um, in Jewish history, there was a continuous movement away from what we know as the Old Testament. In fact, there's testimony in our New Testament that in Jesus' day, the religious leaders relied on what they called, quote, the tradition of the elders, unquote, to interpret the law. And in fact, in their estimation, this oral tradition that was never written down started with Moses. 
They said, no, 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 these, these tradition of the elders, this, this goes all the way back to Moses. The problem is it's not in the text. Well, it's, it's like any movement. And in a moment, I'll talk about the Catholic Church in, in the same light. As time goes on, there are accretions of tradition. There is the text, then there's the interpretation of the text, then there's the interpretation of the interpretation of the text. You follow what I'm saying? Initially, the interpretation of the text is oral tradition. We have those as well. Okay, I got a good one for you. Here's a good one. I bet you've been to a church that interprets this this way. Jesus said, it is easier for a rich person, a rich man, to go through the eye of a needle than to get into the kingdom of heaven. Have you heard an explanation for that? None of you have heard this explanation that I'm about to give you? Okay, I'm going to give you this explanation that is given by churches that are uh, often teaching prosperity gospel, okay? And I'm going to also tell you that this is fraudulent, but this is an oral tradition. This is an example of a contemporary oral tradition. Well, in Jerusalem, when the gates were closed, there was a very, very small gate that a camel could only get through by getting on its knees and crawling through the gate. And it was called the eye of the needle. (laughs) Yeah, that's false. (laughs) Jesus was using hyperbole. He meant, here's a needle. Now, their needles would have been bigger than yours, right? But still, this is a needle. This is a camel. I don't know. What, what are camels? I don't know what noise they make, right? But they spit and snort and whatever. Here's this giant camel. It's easier for that camel to get through this eye of this needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. People don't want to hear that, so they'd rather hear the oral tradition that I just gave you, which is unbelievable because it's not true, all right? Now, um, so what I'm trying to say is I can talk about the Jewish people. I can talk about Catholics. I can talk about us, right? Well, oh, wait a minute. No, I heard a preacher say that that really means if you have to say the word really, you've already left the text behind. Oh, but it really means. It doesn't mean what it says, what it really says, or what it really means. And what you're really doing is what we call in the business eisegesis. Exegesis is the art and science of biblical interpretation. You're seeking to lift the meaning from the text and understand it in today's world, okay? So I'm looking at the text. I'm trying to understand the context of the text, the historical context, the grammatical context, the theological context, right? The canonical context. See, now I'm trying to sound smart, and I'm doing exactly what I'm telling you that I shouldn't be doing. (laughs) But I I want you to understand that I'm not just shooting from the hip here, okay? Um, You need to understand all of those things to understand the text. Eisegesis is reading into the text. It's taking your preconceived idea and cramming it in there, right? I'm taking the world that I live in and the values of the world that I live in. And this is precisely what I see going on with a lot of these books that are written uh, pro-homosexuality, pro-gay marriage, pro-LGBT, that are trying to say, well, no, the Bible agrees with this. The Bible does not agree with this. 
Does it mean we shouldn't have compassion? We shouldn't be nice. We shouldn't be loving. We shouldn't be kind. I'm not saying any of that. But I'm saying you can't normalize these behaviors with the Bible. You can kick the Bible to the curb and burn it in an incinerator and say, I don't believe that old book. That's nonsense. I'm going to go this direction. And I have more respect for you than people that are trying to take the Bible and make it say what the Bible does not say. It's eisegesis. It's reading into the text, right? Um, so uh, in Jesus' day, we find this in the, in the New Testament, um, they talked about, that is, these religious leaders talked about the tradition of the elders uh, that was used to interpret the law. Listen to this passage from Matthew 15, 2 through 6. The religious leaders say to Jesus, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, lest you think this is a cleanliness thing, it's not, right? They didn't wash their hands with soap. They had a specific ritual that was to cleanse them of all of the terrible stuff in the world before they ate bread. And they had this, it's a certain way you had to do this. And Jesus and his disciples didn't do it. And he answered and said to them, rather than saying, well, we don't have to, he said, why do you yourselves also break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So Jesus has now clearly delineated between the commandment, the written commandment, the Torah, and your tradition. And then he gives the example. For God said, and here's the commandment from the Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and mother, and the one who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Wow, that's rough. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I would have given you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this, you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Tradition is not bad, but when tradition reinterprets the law, reinterprets the word, then that tradition is not truth. That tradition is contradiction, right? Well, just a little cursory history lesson here. By the second century AD, Oral traditions, like the one referred to in that story, were codified into written form, and that written form was called the Mishnah. This was held to be almost as important, if not as important, as the Torah, the law. Then the Mishnah became so important that rabbis interpreted it and compiled those interpretations in a document known as the Gemara. Then all of this and more were incorporated into the, uh, the book that has guided Judaism for 1,500 years called the Talmud, right? We have a Babylonian Talmud, for example, right? Uh, and that's all tradition. It's a long way from the original text of the Old Testament, and this explains why Judaism now is so much different than what we find in the Old Testament, right? The Catholic Church did exactly the same thing. Uh, to the New Testament. The interpretation of councils and popes superseded the text of Scripture. And by Martin Luther's time, we find a completely different church than that which existed in the first through third centuries AD. This is why Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church on October 31st of 1517, which started what we now know as the Protestant Reformation, the result of which is churches like ours that hop over 15, 16, 1700 years of church tradition and law and council and try to get back to this original text 
That's what we're constantly trying to do, right? The cry of the Reformation was the five solas, right? Sola in Latin means only. And of course, it's, uh, it's written differently depending on the word that it modifies. Sola scriptura means scripture only. Solus Christus, which means Christ only. You don't get salvation through the Pope. You don't get salvation through a priest. You get salvation through Jesus only. You don't get salvation through Mary. Even if you say you're Hail Marys, you get salvation through Jesus. Sola Scriptura, Solus Christus, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia. That means only faith, only grace. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. And all of this, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God only. So it all begins with the inspired witness of the Holy Bible, sola scriptura. From there, we receive the word of God and discover salvation in Christ by grace through faith to the glory of God, right? So we've got to always go back to the Bible and let the plain meaning of the words of the holy book speak. If we let so-called scholars detract from the plain meaning of the text with their interpretations, or if we let extra-biblical sources determine our interpretation or understanding, we err. And these may be good sources, but it's not the text. You need to read your Bible more than you read books about your Bible. Devotionals are great. I have commentaries that I read, but if I read the commentary more than I read the scripture, then I've taken a step away from the scripture and I'm looking at the scripture through somebody else's lens. See, one of the things that I like about uh, Baptist doctrine is a doctrine called the priesthood of the believer. And that means every one of us has the privilege and the responsibility of reading and interpreting and responding to the Bible. That's why in uh, more historical Baptist churches, more traditional Baptist churches, they eschew any sort of creed. Baptists are not creedal people because what happens is the creed takes the place of the canon. The creed interprets the canon. Now, we have great creeds like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, but see, in the end, those are still statements about Scripture. I've got to go back to Scripture, right? There is a statement um, of faith called the Baptist Faith and Message, and it's been re- restated a couple of different times over the years. Um, but Baptists will still tell you, no, this is a way of saying this is what we believe about Scripture, but you need to go back to Scripture. Scripture is where we get our doctrine, We've got to keep, this is why it's important to have a contemporary translation of scripture on hand, because you've got to keep going back to scripture, even though things change over time. So as a pastor, this principle has to instruct my teaching. If I'm using fancy vocabulary to impress you with my education or my intelligence, then I failed to teach you the truth. In fact, what I'm actually communicating when I use language, the language of the academy is um, see how smart I am. And hopefully I haven't been guilty of that, but it's possible that I have. You don't get anything out of that. Wow, our pastor is so smart, right? I even thought about going and get my doctorate. Did you know that? But I thought, what is that going to add to my ministry except a title? 
I can study everything that I can study that I would need to pay a seminary again to get a doctorate, and I can do that now, right? The people that I teach and preach to aren't requiring that, okay? I don't think that that would make me a better teacher or a better preacher uh, to you uh, if you called me Dr. Hall, but boy, would it make me feel important. So it would appear that the super apostle interlopers who were stealing the Corinthian affection and loyalty from Paul and his companions were using the very types of rhetorical manipulation Paul rejected here. Um, I'll conclude by giving you an example of that. This is scooting ahead in our same book, 2 Corinthians 2, chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. For I am jealous of you, I am jealous of you, I am jealous for you, woo, with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his trickery, your minds will be led astray from, here it is again, sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, this you tolerate very well. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, to these super apostles, right? So um, hopefully this evening's teaching will drive you deeper into the Bible, will motivate you to read that Bible on a regular basis. And as I've told you guys before, I send out a passage every morning, uh, usually around seven o'clock in the morning. Um, What I do is I send out a verse or a couple of verses, but I send you the link so that you can go to the Bible app and you can read the whole chapter. I used to just send the link for the chapter, but now I include a verse. If you want to receive those, anybody in this room, if you're not already, anybody watching online, then you're going to text daily Bible like it's just one phrase, no space, D-A-I-L-Y-B-I-B-L-E, daily Bible to 94000. And then you'll start getting that every day. What am I doing? There's no teaching there. There's no interpretation there. There's no translation there. There's just the Bible. I'm trying to get you into the word. That's where I want you to be every day. Amen? All right. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.